This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Pretty great. Before we get into this episode, though, we have people to shout out for leaving us uh, rates and reviews. Gracelyn, 1998, she said we're her favorite podcast, and she loves the banter, which, thankfully, because that's kind of the thing we're best at, at least me. It's really all I bring to the table. And then Hannah Gaunt, this one was great. She actually said that we were the king and queen, mom and dad, uh, and the lights of her life. So um, high praise there from, from Hannah. So. Thank you, Hannah. So anyway, we just wanted to thanks, Hannah. You know, shout them out for leaving some five star rates and reviews. But we also wanted to shout out Timmy underscore C ninety seven because <laughs> what? I'm sure you could have just said Timmy. That's probably his name. We're, we got to do the handles because otherwise there could be another <laughs> okay. Timmy out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, Keep going. Timmy underscore C ninety seven. So he left us a five star rate and review as well, and asked that we cover J C Lee Dugard. And here we are. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Timmy. <laughs> Thank you, Timmy. Yeah, this this episode sucks. Yeah, no kidding, actually. Timmy, <laughs> we need to have a talk because you and I talked about this offline and I said this is one of America's like most important cases in true crime, but it's also one of the worst by far, too. Yeah. Which is funny because you always keep saying that you want to do more survivor stories like the Ashley Reeves one because you like a happy ending. And although this one does have a happy ending, it's like it's pretty rough. It takes a long time to get to that happy ending, you know? Yeah. So if anybody's more interested in like the super details of this case too, J.C. Lee Dugard actually wrote a book about her time in captivity and then another book about all of her first that she did later on. So highly recommend both of those books. Yeah. And especially if you're interested in the captivity part of it, she goes into a lot of details about what happened to her. If that's what you're looking for, that's that's where it's at. And it is a good read. It's just it's a heavy read, too. It is heavy. So this episode is going to start all the way back in June of 1991. What was the number one song on the country charts? It was actually Diamond Rio, Meet in the Middle. But it kind of sucks because Garth had four number ones that year. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, 91, it's going to be Garth. And then it wasn't. So, but it was Diamond Rio, Me in the Middle. Great song, but not Garth. (laughs) Not a great Garth song, but it is a great Diamond Rio song. (laughs) Yeah. So J.C. Lee Dugard was her mother's oldest daughter. And for a while, it was just her and her mom. Her dad wasn't really in the picture. And she did spend a lot of time with her aunt and her grandparents, but it was really just her and her mom. And she was from Orange County. By 1989, her mom, Terry, had married a guy named Carl. And they had a daughter named Shayna. And J.C. was excited about being a big sister. And she was really close with her mom and with Shayna. But Carl, not so much. Yeah. Listening to her book, which she narrated so i would actually highly recommend that too to hear like just the inflections that she uses on certain things she really does say that they had a really rocky relationship and she could tell she knew that carl very heavily and very obviously favored her sister over her and she talks about how that was hard she wanted someone to love her too the same way and carl was not about that yeah and he was pretty strict and hard to please as a child definitely yeah by the fall of 1990 terry and carl decided to move up north to a pretty rural area south of lake tahoe because they thought it would be safer than raising kids in southern california because in the 80s and 90s the crime rate in la and southern california was pretty high yeah so they thought Moving to the mountains was going to be safer to raise their kids. So June 10th, 1991, less than a year after they had moved there, JC got up that morning and got herself ready for school. And she was bummed because her mom didn't kiss her goodbye before she left for work. But she was excited to talk to her mom when she got home because she had an end of the year school field trip that was coming up to a water park. And she was trying to like build up the courage to ask her mom if she could shave her legs. She was a really shy kid. Legs and armpits. That was the 
the big thing. Yeah. And so she was bummed that her mom didn't kiss her goodbye, but also like, I get it. My mom had to go to work early. Yeah. Because her mom worked as a typesetter, so she had to leave for work pretty early. What is a typesetter? For a newspaper. It's an old school job that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, all right. I'll have to look that up. I don't know what that is. You did look it up when we did the Rodney Alcala episode. He was also a typesetter. Sure did. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. No, you don't, but that's fine. That's okay. So JC got dressed and ate her oatmeal and grabbed her stuff and went out the door. Carl was outside working in the garage and she said bye and started to walk up the hill towards the school bus from their house. Halfway up the hill, a man and a woman in a gray car pulled up to JC and she thought they were going to ask her for directions or something, but the man pulled out a stun gun and shocked her with it. And like, did this so quick, like she didn't even know what was going on, like pulled up in front of her and asked her for directions and like as she was talking to him she's like his hand moves so fast I just saw something black shoot out at me and then I heard electricity sounds and she just fell onto the ground. Yeah in her book she describes the feeling as her whole body going numb and she couldn't control anything including her bladder but she remembers being so scared she wasn't even embarrassed about that. Right then it's about where I turned the book off because I was like damn this is gonna be real heavy yeah she fell backwards and she tried to scoot away from the car into the bushes and the last thing that she remembers grabbing onto was a pine cone before someone pulled her into the car and threw a blanket over her and then something heavy on top of her kids at the school bus stop witnessed this and even her stepdad Carl heard her screaming and witnessed the abduction Carl didn't have his car keys on him so he hopped on a bike that he had in the garage and tried to pedal after them but he couldn't even get halfway up the hill before the car was totally gone. Yeah, he was going uphill on a bike against the car. I mean, there's nothing he was going to be able to do. Yeah, so he stopped at a neighbor's house and called 911 immediately. He gave a perfect description of the car that he saw and said that it was a couple. God. He said that the driver was a male and a woman got out of the car and drug her into the car. And all that he could see was that she was a dark haired woman with an olive complexion. So the police set up roadblocks and sent out bolos, but this was before Amber Alerts, so that was pretty much all they could do. And it led nowhere. They got they didn't stop anybody matching that description. They had no leads, nothing. Which is crazy. Like it wasn't that inconspicuous car, like, you know, You'd think somebody would have been stopped somewhere for... Well, Carl was a pretty big suspect right off the bat because it was known that he didn't have the best relationship with JC. But he took multiple polygraph tests and passed them all. Which we don't recommend taking any, but it's a great thing that he passed, but yeah. Although some of the questions in the polygraphs weren't too flattering either, though. Like, they asked him stuff like, do you sometimes wish JC wasn't around? And he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that d- didn't make him sound very good, but he wasn't involved. So, yeah. So the police kind of, I don't know if they officially cleared him, but they kind of moved on because there was nothing to show that Carl was involved at all. But they looked up JC's biological father too because they thought, well, maybe he abducted her. So they found him living in Southern California, but he had a pretty clear alibi. And his story is that he had never even met JC and that he really hardly knew her mom, like not for very long or anything, which may or may not be true that's a whole nother thing that comes up later on but either way he didn't have her so her biological father was cleared pretty quickly too terry and carl's marriage struggled over the years too because of his possible involvement and you know just the stress of having a missing child is really hard it must be terrible yeah and they would eventually split up but terry never gave up hope that jc was alive she would talk to the moon at night because she knew jc would be seeing the same moon and it was kind of their thing they used to sit on the porch and look at the moon together that's cool it's nice that they have that kind of connection and her mom has that outlet yeah she kept her name and her story in the public eye she advocated for jc big time and always stayed extremely positive and hopeful even when it was pretty obvious to everybody else after years of jc being missing that she was probably not coming home her mom just knew she's like i would know if she was not alive and i think she's alive mother's instincts are amazing to say the absolutely i mean that's crazy yeah she just never gave up she knew her baby would come home and she said that she even had a glimmer of hope because there was a woman involved in the abduction so she thought maybe this woman lost a child of her own or couldn't have kids so she took jc to like love her and be a family that's heavy stuff man honestly like listening to all of this it makes it better and it makes it worse that there's a woman involved yeah 
totally. Because there definitely was a woman involved, but unfortunately being a family was not the reason that they ripped JC from her life. No. The couple who abducted JC was Philip and Nancy Garrido. These two winners have a pretty interesting backstory. Philip grew up in Northern California, and his parents have said that he was a pretty good kid growing up, like pretty normal. Although other people who knew him said that he was pretty strange and not normal. So I believe I believe everybody else. Right. And his parents said they didn't notice any real big red flags until a major head injury that he got in a motorcycle accident. And they said after that, he was kind of Cocoa Puffs. (laughs) There's a little bit of a Looney Tune. Yeah. I know you like Looney Tune. So thought I'd throw it there for you. He also around this time of this motorcycle accident has admitted that this is when he started, you know, kind of dabbling in meth and LSD. So that probably didn't help his mental faculties at all. (laughs) No, I haven't heard good things about meth doing that. So Philip Garrido later confessed too that around this time he had a thing for public masturbation. Oh, yeah. And that he would do it a lot outside of elementary schools. He would do it Outside of elementary schools. Correct. He would park outside elementary schools and why are men in his car? So freaking weird. Like, why is it always men who are just doing the most bizarre, disgusting things? Like, well, I mean, in this story, there's a woman doing it too. So it's not just men. But she's not sitting out in front of an elementary school doing this. No, but she ends up luring children for him. So, I mean, also bad. Yeah, I don't know. This whole thing is, I mean, everywhere (laughs) you look, there's so much bad happening. Yeah. So when he was in his early 20s, he was arrested and charged with repeatedly raping a 14-year-old girl after drugging her. Oh, jeez. But his scumbag lawyer threatened this little girl into not testifying, like scared her so much about testifying that the charges were dropped. Wow. Yep. Like, how do you even go to sleep at night knowing that? Oh, I don't know how any lawyers sleep at night. So in 1973, after those charges were dropped, he got married to a woman named Christine. And she has since accused him of domestic violence and said that he kidnapped her when she threatened to leave him and like held her hostage. So we're getting, uh, he's starting to kind of lay some groundwork to a backstory on how he, how he operates. Yeah, he's awful. So in 1976, he hitched a ride from a 25-year-old girl named Katie Calloway in South Lake Tahoe. When he got in her car, he ended up kidnapping her and taking her to Reno, Nevada, where he had a storage unit all set up already as like a soundproof dungeon. Oh, God. He had a bunch of boxes in the front and then a couple of sets of curtains that like helped with the sound. And behind that was a mattress and a lot of accessories. What do you mean by Sex toys, handcuffs, Vaseline, ropes, chains, you know. Oh, those kinds of accessories. Yeah, and over a six-hour period, he repeatedly tortured and raped her in this storage unit until a police officer noticed the car outside of the unit for a long time. And he was like, I wonder what's going on in there. So he knocked on the door to see what was going on inside the storage unit. Oh, thank God he did. Yeah, but Greedo was like talking his way out of it. Just like, oh yeah, I'm just hanging out in my storage unit. Get it, get out of here. But then Katie came running out naked yelling about what he was doing to her and the officer arrested Greedo. Thankfully, thankfully he didn't restrain her and she did come running out because... Yeah. Who knows what he would have done with her. So he was convicted of rape and kidnapping and sentenced to 50 years in federal prison. Okay. Which should be the end of this story. Right. Like what more? We shouldn't have any more to go (laughs) off of at this point. Right. But of course, because the system sucks and we don't keep violent predators in prison, we have a lot more to go. He was also ordered to be psychologically evaluated during the trial and he was diagnosed as a sexual deviant, a chronic drug user, and personality disorder so not even borderline personality disorder. <laughs> just went straight for it like yeah they were pretty clear he was not borderline in any way he was way over <laughs> so he sent to leavenworth in kansas to serve his 50-year federal prison sentence for the kidnapping and this is when his wife christine finally gets away from him but philip doesn't stay single for very long how <laughs> How do, how, do, uh-huh. how do these guys not stay single? 
Like, it just blows my mind. Well, while he was in Leavenworth, he meets a woman named Nancy Bocanegra, who was there visiting her uncle. So she comes from pretty solid stock, too. Guys, just don't meet anybody in prison. That's really the only goal today. Yeah, I don't even know why they're allowed to get married. That's always been the weirdest thing to me. It's like, they're in prison. At the moment, they don't have, like, the same rights that we yes they have human rights and stuff but like getting married is a privilege like why are we letting them getting married in prison that doesn't make any sense it's never really made any sense to me either although it's also never made sense why somebody would want to marry somebody in prison for the same reasoning well and that's what i'm saying is it never turns out well because these relationships are like pretty toxic from the beginning obviously because it's somebody who's in prison for being a shit a fucking pedophile and a rapist and then some mentally ill girl who who's like, oh, I'm in love with him. It's like, no, (laughs) get away from her. Like, he shouldn't have been allowed to get married. I don't understand that at all. I don't get it either. Or conjugal visits, like... What's going on with all this? This this doesn't make sense. I agree. Yeah. So anyway, they meet while she's there visiting her uncle. And in 1981, they get married at Leavenworth for no good reason. Although those photos usually are pretty funny when they when they end up when you see them. In the- <laughs> yeah, but still, yeah. it's like, dude, this never goes well. So by January of 1988, after only serving 10 years... Of a 50-year sentence, 10 years, one-fifth uh, of his out? sentence. Like, this doesn't make sense. You shouldn't be able to get out for such brutal attacks. Like, stay in, stay in jail. That's where you belong. Yeah. Well, they decided that he was a good boy. So they were like, no, we're going to let him go on good behavior. I'm like, hey, remember when he raped that girl for like six hours in the storage unit? That's not good behavior. And it was so premeditated. It's not like it just kind of happened. They were on a date and, hey, you know, know. what? Like, it was a mixed signal or something. Like, <laughs> there was so much thought yeah. and effort that went into this. Yeah. They weren't on a date. Like, she, he, she gave him a ride from a grocery store. They weren't even, like, they didn't even know each other. They were total strangers. He was married at the time. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. So anyway, long story short, he was released for good behavior. Obviously, good behavior while he was in, you know, federal prison where he doesn't have choices (laughs) over his behavior. But okay. So he didn't get to go straight home, though, because he had an additional five-year sentence in Nevada. So he was transferred to Nevada State Prison because he he did all this shit in Reno. So he had other charges in Nevada. The kidnapping was a federal charge, but he had other charges in Nevada. So he was transferred to Nevada State Prison, but he only served seven months of that five-year sentence. So not even a fifth oh of that sentence. Oh, my God. Like... And then again, he was released for good behavior. It's like, uh, wh- I thought they had to serve like at least half of their time. Well, and he's not interested in raping dudes in jail. He's interested in raping women on the street. Yeah. What good behavior? He's in here because what he wants isn't even available to him. Of course he's being good. Of course he's being good. He's locked down 23 hours a right? day. Right? Like, oh yeah, he doesn't <laughs> cause any problems. Well, good. He's already in jail. You're like, yeah, that's why we sent him there, so that he can't cause any more problems. Right. Like, oh, you've been you've been on good behavior. Your terrible behavior got you here. You don't, like... Yeah. You don't get to just come out. I know. Well, he did. There's a lot of stuff that this guy gets away with, and I don't understand. So in August of 1988, he was put on federal parole because he had that 50-year sentence, and he served less than a fifth of it. So so he is on parole. So he's supposed to be being supervised, like, pretty heavily. I would hope, or you would think, I guess. Yeah, you would think. He and Nancy decide to move in with his elderly mother in Antioch, California. And he had to wear an ankle monitor and everything and register as a sex offender. Like, he's on parole. So, like, did he have to, like, go around knocking on doors and be like, Hi, I'm Philip and I'm a sex offender? No. that I don't know where you got that knocking on doors thing. That's never been a thing. I thought you had to introduce yourself to your neighbors that, like, Hey, I'm a chomo. No. Uh, what's up? No. Well, I do think that should be a thing because if that would distract a lot of people just from that alone. There's that having to <laughs> go up and... Tell your neighbors. Yeah, but now it's all on the internet. So now everybody knows who the sex offenders are. But he was also classified as a low-level sex offender because- What? Yeah, because at this point, the government didn't know he was a child molester. You know, that he was into kids. Because the girl that he was arrested for was 25. When he got arrested, he didn't tell them he was real into the- doing the shit at the elementary schools. He left that part out. <laughs> well. But I don't understand how he got the low-level offender title in the beginning because- 
I don't either. I mean, what he did was very high level, so I'm not sure. Exactly. But we'll get into that. Getting caught peeing outside is low level. Getting caught yeah. raping a woman for six hours in your storage unit seems pretty high that level you set to me. Up? Yeah, you planned it like this, and then you got her to take you here so that you could trap her. Like, yeah. this was planned. It's premeditated. God, I hate this shit. I know, but... <laughs> Back then, people slipped through the cracks. Like, you're going to see. This is, they slipped through the cracks. I mean, they still do, but. Oh, we know they slipped through the cracks. We talk about this all the time, how people slip through the stupid cracks. Samuel Little slipped through all the cracks, too. Yeah, but Samuel Little, yeah, <laughs> differently, though, but yes. Differently, but yeah, he absolutely. Okay, you need to calm down so right. we can get through this. All right, all right. I know. Sorry. Okay, I just passionate. Yeah, so he had to wear an ankle bracelet and register as a sex offender, supposedly being monitored. At this time, Philip's mother was getting older and she had Parkinson's and dementia. Nancy was apparently a caregiver, like she worked at different rehabs and senior care places. So it probably seemed like a good situation for them to move in and take care of Philip's mother. But it wasn't. I mean, Philip's a meth head who does LSD every day and Nancy's an idiot who married some guy in federal prison. So is she not doing the drugs, too? Yes, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, most likely. I don't know. I wasn't there, but <laughs> most likely she was also involved in some of that. But Philip's drug use was out of control. He was hearing voices and he was convincing Nancy that she could hear the voices too. Oh God. Seems like she was probably doing the meth. <laughs> the At least the LSD. Yeah. Or she might just be as crazy as him. I don't know. We'll find out. But Philip fancied himself a rock star and built a series of sheds and outbuildings behind a fence in the backyard that would serve as like his studio. He even soundproofed one and had like mixing equipment and stuff because he thought he was like pretty good at the singing. <laughs> and the guitar playing? He wasn't. There's videos. He wasn't very good. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised by that. But it was a weird maze of like tents and buildings. And he was a meth head. It was like a methy back. At, you know, he was just like building stuff. Yeah. It was nonsense. But it was his and Nancy's weird thing that they were into. Or at least his weird thing. And Nancy was just an idiot and went along <laughs> with everything he did, apparently. So Philip, by this point, was obviously into kids. That was evident by his <laughs> masturbating outside of schools. And Oh, my God. How does that not send him to jail alone? Yeah. And since Nancy, according to him, wasn't really into sex, she would help him by videotaping little girls at parks. Oh, man. And, like, the way they would do this is he would, like, set up like he was playing the guitar and singing, and she would act like she was filming him, but she was really filming little girls at the park, like, on swings and stuff. And she would even get them to come into the back of her van and, like, do gymnastics moves, and she would film it. What? For Philip. Yeah. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. So these two come up with this plan of curing Philip of his sex problem by kidnapping a child to keep as Philip's sex slave. So their plan is to steal a kid, keep her as his personal plaything, and mm -hmm. and then he won't have to go do anything else with any other kids. That's like that's what he's getting at. Yes. And when you say it out loud, it's as crazy as it sounds, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's what they decide on doing. So on the morning of June 10th, 1991, they drove from Antioch to Tahoe and together they kidnapped JC. So if you think this is terrible uh, so far, it, this only gets worse and worse from here. Yeah, and it is pretty bad so far, but you're right. It only gets worse. So now's a good time to turn it off if uh, turn off the podcast if you're not interested in hearing how much worse it gets. But otherwise, buckle up because we're going. Yeah. So after being held down under the blanket for the entire drive, which was hours, when they arrived back at Philip's mother's house, he kept the blanket on JC's head and took her into the bathroom of the house. He forced her to take off her clothes and take a shower with him, and he forced her to touch him. JC was scared. I mean, she was 11, and she even describes in her book that she didn't know anything about sex or sexual abuse. She'd never been touched by anybody. Like, this was extremely terrifying and all completely new information for her. So after this horrible situation with him in the bathroom, he put a towel over her head and walked her to one of the soundproof sheds in the backyard. She had no idea where she was, and she couldn't see anything. 
This poor little girl, like, it's so hard. It's so hard to fathom this. So she said that she tried to hear and feel as much as she could to know where she was so that when she got back to her mom, she could tell her where she was. So she heard a train and she felt dirt under her feet, but like she had no idea where she was. Once in the room, he handcuffed her with her hands behind her back and left her naked and alone with just a pile of dirty blankets on the floor. Hmm. And he locked her in this room and left. So for the first week or so, he would come back in once or twice a day and bring her fast food and soda. That would be the only time she got the cuffs off. Or interactions with other people. Like he was it. Yeah. In her book, she describes this time in detail, which we could never do the way she does in her own words. But she explains how lonely and hungry and scared she was and how she figured out really quickly to try not to cry because she couldn't wipe away her tears because her hands were handcuffed behind her back. And so if she cried, her tears would dry on her face and then they would itch. That's the saddest thing I think I've ever heard. Yeah, it's terrible. Oh my god. So like you said, she started to look forward to him coming in because he would take the handcuffs off, even if it was just for a few minutes. And she said he would make funny accents and jokes and he would bring her food and he would empty her bathroom bucket so that she could have a clean bathroom bucket. He was her only human interaction, her only source of food, anything. Like, she was literally alone in a dark room. Completely dependent on him. And she said it was hard to tell even time or days because she had no point of reference. She tried to sleep as much as possible to pass the time. And there was a window in there with bars on it, but it had a towel over it. So she could see, like, daylight and night, but she would fall asleep and then wake up and didn't know if it had been, like, it was dark when she fell asleep and light when she woke up or the opposite and she would get disoriented. So she she doesn't know how long that went on for where he would he was being nice to her in the beginning she thinks it was probably about a week in the first time he brought her a milkshake and she was excited about it but the reason he brought the milkshake was a lot more sinister than just being nice this milkshake day would be the first time he would rape her this is where she describes what happened in the book and we're not going to talk about it because it's 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 uh it's really hard to talk about. It's really hard to yeah. understand. You know, she goes into great detail about what had happened to her and I wish she hadn't, but she does. Yeah, but it's it's her story to tell and it's not her shame. It's his shame. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand why she told it because she's like, hey, this isn't my secret to keep. I didn't do this. And I get that 100%. Totally. But I hate that this happened. Like, it makes you want to, like, rip this guy's vocal cords out of his face. Every time you hear about something else in this book, like, it makes you wish that you were there. Just so you could stop it. So that you could be the one to put your knee through this guy's face. Yeah. So this goes on and on for months. And eventually he would take the cuffs off, but she was always locked in this shed from the outside. The lock was on the outside of the door. And there was bars on the windows. Like, there was no getting out of here. He then explained to her that he was going to go on what he would call runs, like you talked about before, which is where he would do a bunch of meth and torture her for days. He would sexually abuse her. He'd videotape it. And after it was over, he would cry and be nice to her for a while and manipulate her into feeling sorry for him after what he had just done to her. And this happens right from the start, from the beginning. It's hard to even explain it. Like, she explains it pretty well in her book, but it's hard for us to explain it in an hour podcast. You know, like, the mental manipulation is just wild. One of the examples of this is he told her that she was helping him deal with his sex problem, and she was saying... Saving other little kids from being hurt by him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's... Yeah. Like, that... How could you tell somebody? I, I don't know, man. I don't get it. I, how could you tell this little girl that? No. And there was other manipulation, too, besides mental and physical and all that kind of stuff. There was emotional manipulation. Over the years, he would give her kittens and toys for company and then take them away. Or they would just vanish. And obviously, he did something with them. Yeah, and he would give her kittens or, you know, cats or whatever and then say he didn't like the smell and then get rid of them. Yeah. Who knows what he would do to get rid of them. He said he would give them to people but you know yeah at one point he gave her an old tv to help pass the time but he only allowed her to watch qvc then about seven months into this whole ordeal he says he wants to introduce her to his wife 
and that he wanted them to get along. He wanted them to be friends. This is when she meets Nancy. So leading up to this, though, like, do you think that Nancy didn't want to meet her or do you think Philip didn't allow her? to meet her i have no idea i've wondered that just could nancy like was nancy like hey i want to meet her and he was like no you can't or if he was like hey i really want you to get to know her and she was like i don't want anything to do with this yeah i'm not sure but about seven months in is when she meets nancy for the first time and a whole new level of manipulation started Nancy would bring her fast food and toys, Barbies, and be super nice to her and almost like caring one minute and then just flip on a dime and be super cold and jealous of her the next minute like like she wanted Philip or something. She doesn't want this. Yeah. she's You're forcing this on her. Yeah, I'm not looking for this, but JC really wanted Nancy to like her too because it was the only other person and it was a female. It had to be at least a little comforting, I would think. Yeah, and Philip told her he wanted them to get along, so now she had to learn to adapt to both of their moods now, not just Philip's because she'd been adapting to Philip's shit to survive for the last seven months and this is what he wanted so now she had to learn to adapt to Nancy's shit which is like to me a superpower because they would have killed me within five minutes 100% they would have absolutely she is one of the smartest like instinctually smart like she was only 11 obviously this behavior wasn't learned this was instinct on how to survive like it was built into her person to survive this she did somehow and she learned to adapt to both of their moods and like kind of do what she had to do to get through each day and the drug use the mental abuse sexual assault horrible living conditions are just in indescribable and they go on for years like all of this goes on for years and at one point philip was even arrested again for a failing drug test and he spent a month in jail and nancy was her sole captor and still never let her go that right there that's what gets me it's like how could you not let her go right there you had an opportunity to let this little girl out to get yourself out yeah because her later her defense is going to be that she was manipulated by philip too and it's like well what happened right exactly for that month that he was in jail like you should have let her out is philip's mom still around at this point yes but yeah she so i mean maybe nancy we don't know her involvement but I'm saying maybe Nancy felt too guilty to leave or, you know, to change anything because he was taking care of the mom. I don't know what her fucking deal is, but I f- she's worse than him. Like, you expect him to be a monster. He proved it multiple, multiple times. He should have been in prison for 50 years. Like, he proved he was a monster. She's almost worse than him because you don't expect her to be a monster. And then she is. Yeah. Absolutely. She's just as involved, just as culpable. All of yeah. It. Absolutely. So anyway, she never lets her go the whole time Philip's in prison. And then almost three years into her captivity, Philip and Nancy bring her a home-cooked meal for the first time. Three years they've only fed her fast food. I would imagine they've only fed themselves fast food too, though. These are drug addicts. I don't think they're setting up shop to make home-cooked meals. Yeah, I understand, but I mean, she's 11. She can eat fast food once a day for, yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Well, I, I completely agree. And Philip's mom had made corned beef for Easter dinner, and they brought her leftovers. But again, they weren't doing this just to be nice. There was a reason they did this. They sat down and told 13-year-old JC that she was pregnant. How did they know before her? Because she didn't even know what sex was. Like, she didn't even associate sex with having a baby. She didn't know. But, like, did they do a pregnancy test or was she just starting to, like, show? Like, I just, I don't. Oh, she was four months pregnant. She's in the book. She says she was starting, she was starting to show. Wow. And she knew something was going on because she knew she had been gaining weight. And she said she felt really full all the time. Like, she felt pregnant. Yeah. But she didn't know what that was at 13. Jeez. So a child, alone and scared and pregnant, and now she has to take in all these new fears about the baby and what was going to happen to the baby and... Oh, yeah. What was he going to do? And yeah, I mean, I couldn't even imagine... But by this point, Philip was getting pretty obsessed with religion. He was always kind of 
obsessed with it and nancy was a jehovah's witness and so she was pretty religious but by this point he was like real into it he decided to let jc keep the baby and he would learn how to deliver it himself yeah what else was he gonna do though like keep the baby like he's not gonna take her for an abortion and he can't yeah so no prenatal care no knowledge of what was happening to her nothing and a few months later in august of 1994 she was 14 by this point locked in a shed alone and scared she went into labor by herself yep alone at 14 went into labor by herself philip and nancy came in hours later to check on her and realized she was in labor and helped deliver the baby yeah well, how much did numbnuts actually learn about this and how helpful was he i'm no, sure. i'm I'm sure not helpful. Zero percent, I'm positive. Miraculously, though, the baby was healthy. And from then on, her and JC lived in the shed together. That's, like, (laughs) you said before we really got into this that it keeps getting worse and worse. And you, you weren't wrong. It keeps getting worse and worse. Yep. So after the birth of her first daughter... I don't know, she didn't really say this, but she kind of implied that the sexual assaults were getting less and less towards this point and i in the book she makes it seem like because he's getting more into religion and he's doing less drugs but i i feel like it's because jc was getting older and he was less interested yeah probably true so in november of 1997 when she was 17 she gave birth again in the backyard like she got pregnant again gave birth a second time to another healthy baby girl And Philip held the baby and prayed to God that he would never hurt his children. Oh, what a, what a saint. God. This guy sucks. Like, every way you slice this guy, he sucks. How would you even need to, like, say that? It shouldn't even be a thought on your mind. Ah, man. Well, yeah. So after the birth of the second baby, Nancy and Philip got her a bunk bed in the shed so that her and the girls would be more comfortable. This is six years and two children into this, and she gets a bed for the first time. So comfortable is relative. Yeah. So she was still breastfeeding her oldest daughter when her youngest daughter was born because Philip forced her to. He said it was good for the baby, even though she was like three. Then one of the most cruel things was sometime shortly after her youngest daughter was born, Philip came to JC and told her that Nancy was feeling left out of the family. So the dynamics were going to change. And that the girls would now call Nancy mom and JC needed to pick a new name and the girls would grow up thinking she was their sister, not their mom. Oh my God. Like, why does it keep getting worse? You know, like- I know, it's so cruel. And you wouldn't even think like something like that, but like just the twisting of the knife over and over and over again for this poor little girl. Yeah. So she picked the name Alyssa because she liked Alyssa Milano's character in Who's the Boss or Charles in Charge or whatever <laughs> show she What show was she in? It was, was, it who's, it the was who's the Boss, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's before my time. I didn't know who Alyssa Milano was until Charmed, so- You're- not, we're born in the same year. Who? You and me. I know who she was from Who's the Boss. And you're like, eh, before my time. Oh. Like <laughs> It is before our time. I don't think so. I think I it was on during, while we were still very much alive. <laughs> oh, well, then I just never watched it. Anyway, JC was a good mom, even though she had to pretend to be the girl's sister. She taught them how to read and write. She made them go to school. Like she set up like a homeschool situation and had a schedule for them and made them go to school from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. She really made the best out of the worst situation that they were in. Then later on, Philip started a printing company from their house. Wasn't this one of the weirdest things? Like he just up and started a printing company randomly? Yeah, it did seem weird to me yeah. too, but that's why. I, but you know, meth people, they come up with ideas and they just <laughs> run with it. They're just like, yes, I'm going to start a printing company out of my living room. Meth. I am going to start a printing company out of my <laughs> living room. Meth I am. Yeah, exactly. Philip Greedo Paper Company. <laughs> that's probably what it's called. He's got no shortage of, shortage of names. Yeah. So she actually liked this, even though he forced her to like do all the work. It was something to fill her days up with. She actually worked and was doing something productive. Which is incredible. I mean, I'm glad she had that kind of mental stimulation stuff. But like, he was just like, here, you haven't been to school in several years. You you got this, right? Take it and run with it. 
Yeah. Things were kind of changing around this time, too, because the sexual assaults were getting fewer and farther between because JC was getting older and Philip was getting crazier. And it just kind of he was getting really into the religion thing. He was like obsessed with the fact that he cured himself of his problems. And it's it's really wild. But. He really did think that they were like a family and that he cured his schizophrenia, which he was never even diagnosed with, but apparently (laughs) self-diagnosed schizophrenia, which he didn't cure. He's definitely not cured. He's still crazy. Yeah. But around this time, his mother was getting worse and worse. So Nancy and JC would take shifts taking care of his mother. Oh, wow. Big time take it. Like she was... Pretty much bedridden by this point. So is he's letting her live in the big house now? No, she's allowed to come into the house to work, her shift of taking care of his mom, but she still lived in the backyard. Wow, and she still just never took off. Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, she's been in captivity for 15 years. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot to the psychological handcuffs, a lot more than the physical ones, especially after that long. Like, I mean, she was a little, little girl when he took her. Yeah, I'm not saying she should have. I'm just, I mean, it's hard to say. We've never been anywhere near that kind of a situation. But not having the handcuffs on, not having the... the barriers in between you know yeah but she was still scared to death where was she gonna go she had two girls to worry about too and she had two kids like how was she gonna totally and even if he had let her live in the house at this point it's not like the conditions in the house were much better than the yard like philip had let the place go to shambles she describes in the book that even the kitchen sink had to be pumped like it didn't drain so you had to pump the water out manually out of the sinks and stuff like he didn't take care of his mother or her home sounds like he let everything around him turn to trash that's just who he was everything around him went poorly yep so eventually they get a computer for the business and jc was dealing with customers and doing the graphic design stuff for the printing company but he had convinced her that he could see everything that she did on the computer So she was never able to, like, look up her mom or reach out to anybody because she thought Philip could see everything she did on the computer. Which, why wouldn't she think that? Of course. Yeah. Why wouldn't she? My boss can see everything I do now. I mean, maybe not in 1984, but she sure can now, so. Well, at this point, they're in the 2000s, but yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Timelines escape me. Yeah, I know. You're real bad at timelines. I know. So the one thing that she did do was print out workbooks for her kids to help them with their education. She would go to like websites about online school and stuff because she only had a fifth grade education and her kids were getting older than she was when she was kidnapped. And she did the best that she could, you know. Totally. She could only do so much with them. You know, she only knew so much and she probably learned a lot by doing this job. Yeah. And at some point in her 20s, too, she was allowed to leave the house every once in a while. But it was always with Philip or with Nancy. And she looked drastically different than she did when she was 11. Sure. Plus, where they kept her in Antioch is hours away from where she was abducted in Tahoe. Totally. Nobody would have known to be looking for her, especially anymore. Yeah. And she describes this as like, she felt like when they would leave the house, like she was invisible. She felt like nobody even could tell anything was wrong. It's really sad. That's super sad. Philip was getting more and more frantic with the voices and the religion and starting to preach it to people in public places. Like, he had this black box that he would say, like, translated the voices that he would hear so that other people could hear him. It was really awkward. I did like that. Awkward. Yeah, that was pretty cool. It was like, okay. <laughs> like, you only- Yeah, what did you- he call- There was- there was a specific name he called. Oh, Bionic Ears. Oh, yeah. He made her put in Bionic Ears so she could like hear voices in his music or something weird yeah. like that. Like, Yeah, it was really fucked yeah, up. Yeah, dude, you're only making yourself sound worse. Like, you're not doing yourself yeah. the favor you think you are. Yeah, so one day in August of 2009, he decided to go to UC Berkeley to preach to his nonsense, and he took the girls with him, JC's daughters with him. He was told by somebody at the college that he needed permission from the special events office at the campus police station. So he went in there and talked to a lady named Lisa Campbell, who was in charge of that special events department. And while talking to Greedo, she got a really bad feeling. And it was not so much his religious rantings. She's like, yeah, he was just like a crazy meth head guy. You know, they always say crazy stuff. 
like he was talking about his church that he called God's Desire. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, and that's what the event was for. But she was really focused on the two kids that were with him. She said that, you know, for 11 and 15, they weren't acting normal. She said their energy level wasn't right. And like their just behavior, something set off bells and whistles for her. She said they looked at him like he was a god. And when they weren't looking at him, they were like looking straight ahead, almost robotic. She said that she couldn't really pinpoint what was wrong. It was just like a feeling. So she told Philip to come back the next day for an appointment to fill out paperwork. She knew she wasn't going to let him preach on the campus or anything, but she wanted to look him up and maybe ask another officer to like sit in with her and observe what she was seeing. So she asked Officer Allie Jacobs to run a background check on Philip after he left that day. And she asked her to sit in on the meeting the next day. So Officer Jacobs ran the background check and saw that he was on parole for rape and kidnapping and that he was a registered sex offender. And so she's like, yeah, this isn't good. He's not going to be preaching here at the college, for sure. Right. Thank God she turned her brain on to be like, hey, this doesn't seem right. Yeah. So when they came back the next day, Officer Jacobs, who was sitting in on this meeting now, noticed that the girls seemed pale, like they didn't spend a lot of time in the sun. And she noticed some very submissive behavior towards Philip, which she thought was unusual for teenage girls and their dads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, uh, I don't know any teenage girls that are like that. She said they looked at him like he was just like a god. You know, it's like no, te every teenage girl <laughs> rolls her eyes at their dad. You know, she's like, something's not right here. 100%. But there was nothing that he was doing to arrest him for. Like, he wasn't doing anything illegal. So they let him rant and rave for a while, and she just kind of observed everything that was going on. And she spent most of her time asking the girls questions. And she said their answers just kind of threw threw her for a loop and they said that they had another sister at home so she was just like ah, eh, something's off here so when they left she decided to call his parole officer and say hey i think you might want to do like a check-in on this guy because of what i just witnessed here and she explained that it wasn't the you know Methican American Jesus talk that was bothering her. It was his daughter's behavior that concerned her the most. And when the parole officer got her voicemail about this, he kind of was like, oh, I better look into this because Philip Greedo does not have children. So I don't know what this lady's talking about. So he called her back and was like, hey, he doesn't have kids. And she's like, the fuck he doesn't. <laughs> he came in here with his two daughters. They were calling him daddy. She's like, they even told me they had a sister at home. Like, he absolutely has kids. So the parole officer called Philip into his office because not only was this a big deal about him having kids that he shouldn't have because he's a registered sex offender. Right. But UC Berkeley was out of the range he was supposed to go from his ankle monitor. He was only supposed to go 15 miles from his house. And UC Berkeley is like 40 miles away. So that's a violation in itself. Why wouldn't he do whatever he wanted, though? Yeah, exactly. Like, he's been doing whatever the fuck he wants for however long and they don't yeah. do anything about it. So Yeah, I get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a violation in itself. And instead of arresting him, they were just like, can you come in here and talk to us about why you violated your parole? Yeah. It's like, I don't think that's how that works, but it did, apparently. <laughs> so Philip told him that the kids were his nieces. They were his brother's kids. And that he had permission to have them with him at UC Berkeley. So the parole officer said, okay, well then bring them with you to my office with one of their parents so that their parents can tell me that you had permission. Which, if this parole officer was worth his weight, a quick goog of his brother would have told the officer that he didn't have any fucking kids. But okay, <laughs> let's just trust the methed out pedophile to prove it to you. Yeah. Who's on federal parole, by the way. He's not just on parole. He's on federal parole. At this point, it's been transferred to the state of California, though, because he lives in California. Why would... Well, that's kind of how that's how that works. Right. Like if you're on parole in a state and you move to another state, they transfer it. It's kind of weird. Trust me, they're all going to blame each other by the end of this. So it's kind of important who's actually in charge of him. But we don't really know. So on August 26, 2009, Philip and Nancy show up at his parole officer's office with JC and the girls. All of them had to have had like their hearts pumping. I don't know. By this point, she's been with them for 18 years. Like, probably not. They were probably just like, let's go in and straighten this whole thing out. And it's like, ah, okay. Yeah, maybe. 
So she told the parole officers that they were her children and Philip had permission to take them to UC Berkeley. And the parole officer decided to separate JC and the girls from Philip because they seemed to like look to him for every answer. Like, what are we supposed to say? What are we, you know, but they didn't change their story once they were separated. She told them they're my kids and I told him that he could take them. But she also wouldn't give them any ID to prove who she was or who the girls were. And she got agitated when they got aggressive with her and they were like, who, you know, what's going on here? Who are you? You know, and she asked why she was being interrogated like she's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And eventually she and Nancy and the girls just left. And they went out to the van to wait for Philip because they were like, I don't need to be questioned by you. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not on parole. I'm not on parole. I'm leaving. Yeah. So they went out to the van to wait for Philip. Well, Philip's story didn't line up with JC's. And the parole officer was like, well, what the, why is he telling me a different story than she's telling me? So the officer went back out to the van and asked her again, like, who are you and why is his story different from your story? And she asked if she could see Philip. And they allowed it. They put her in a room with Philip. And when she saw him, she just asked him like, hey, what am I supposed to do? And he told her to get a lawyer. And then he winked at her and they took him away. I know you want me to say something. I'm just still (laughs) going through all of this. Yeah. So at this point, they don't know what the hell's going on either. So they call the police department because... I thought parole officers were police officers, but I guess they're different. No, they can arrest people, can't they? No, I don't know. They called the police, though, because they were like, something's going on here. (laughs) We don't know. Call the cops. Well, and even if they are, these parole officers are obviously a bunch of fucking idiots. We'll find out. (laughs) So they wouldn't know. But a female officer came and talked to JC in another room. And in the meantime, while she's talking to JC a lot less aggressively than the parole officers were, like instead of yelling at her and telling her she had to prove who she was, she was just like, what is happening? You know, she just talked to her like a human. In the meantime, Philip was in the other room confessing to kidnapping her. This is the biggest, like hairpin turning in this entire story like of all this stuff this crazy dude has been doing he finally told the truth yeah that's and he admitted that the girls were his daughters and that he kidnapped jc years ago and but he didn't tell them her name so the female officer told jc that philip just confessed she promised that they would bring jc's kids back in if she told them her name and she said she couldn't she hadn't said it in 18 years and she didn't think she could say it out loud so she asked the police officer for a pen and paper and that she could write it down so they gave her a pen and paper and she wrote jc lee dugard and her date of birth and her mom's name on the paper hell yeah that's the part where you're just like it's finally over yep so they called her mom at home and she wasn't there but her sister picked up and they explained the whole situation and and remember too like her sister was so young when she was taken she barely remembered her she had all these stories of jc and you know her older sister and she loved her and she took care of her and jc obviously remembered her but her sister only had memories to go off of and now by the time she's rescued her sister's an adult she's in college (laughs) like that's how long she was that's crazy so anyway they called jc's mom at work and they told her like we found her and her mom thought they were kidding and she's like this isn't funny (laughs) yeah like what it's not a funny joke and it's like oh shit that's like that's not a joke so they had to put jc on the phone to talk to her mom oh my god could you i couldn't imagine this mom's brain just exploding and melting at the same time i couldn't imagine So JC and her daughter stayed at a hotel that night surrounded by law enforcement and she had to explain to her kids the story of what happened to her, how she was their mom, not their sister. Absolutely wild. Just so wild. And this is why I said this is one of America's most important true crime stories is to see that sometimes, even a long time after, there's still hope for a possible good outcome. Totally. So they were reunited with her family the next day. So she had been in captivity for 18 years. My gosh. Yeah. So happy her mom was still alive too to see her come home. And JC and her girls and her mom and her sister and her aunt and, you know, their family, they went into a really intense therapy program called uh, reunification therapy with a doctor who specialized in abductions named Rebecca Bailey. It turned out to be like a really, really good program for her. They used horses and other animals a lot in her therapy. Animals were like a real big deal for yeah, her. Yeah. And well, in that training too, they used those animals 
animals like for different things on how to train for like the media and they use like baskets with grain yeah. and stuff it's it's incredible i we really do recommend listening to this book or reading this book yeah because just that therapy alone is incredible therapy that you i would never have thought of yeah and just the being outside really kind of made me think when she said like i couldn't sit in a room and talk about all this stuff like i've been in a room my whole life you know totally she opened up more to her therapist when they were outside so yeah they did a lot of hiking and working with the horses and they had to work with like a professional chef to like learn how to cook and eat real food like they had to learn everything they literally she'd never driven a car she was almost 30 years old when she was rescued and her younger sister ended up teaching her how to drive it's amazing her daughters did extremely well and went to school and they're now in their late 20s and JC went on to write two best-selling books and she started a foundation called the Jace Foundation which stands for just ask yourself to care and they help families that have been through extreme trauma so it's really wonderful and her and her therapist Dr. Bailey they sit on the board of directors together for that foundation it's really like she, her story since her kidnapping is just as amazing as surviving the kidnapping. Right? Like, not everybody would be able to to do what go through what she went through and not only come out on top, but kind of come out and like be able to help other people too. And so it yeah, really is thrive. Yeah, and thrive absolutely. She's forty two yeah. now. She still has a lot of life left to live. So, and the symbol for her Jace Foundation is a pine cone. Oh, that's cool. Sweet. Yeah, because it was the last thing she touched before. Yeah, she's real big into pine they cones. I guess she stole her. Well, yeah, she said that like people have asked her, like, "Can I get you anything?" And she's asked for pine cones because it's kind of her thing. Because, like you said, it was the last thing she touched before she was taken. So she would also go on to sue the state of California and the federal government for failing to properly supervise Philip Greedo before, during, and after her abduction. Thank God. Since he was on parole the entire fucking time. Yeah. How many times must a parole officer's come to their house, done walkthroughs? No shit. Been through there. Talk to them. She even says in her book that there were times she would answer the door for the parole officer, and the parole officer would be like, hey, you're a little girl. Who are you? And Philip would be like, oh, that's my, my, uh, my brother's kid. And just kind of move on. And- where is the professor yeah. then going like, hey, you're a, a chomo. This is a child. We need to verify this because yeah. this could be a big deal. And walking through the backyard. We know that they did walk through the backyard. They saw the things, but they didn't go in anywhere and look into anything. Like nothing. They just never. I know. It's crazy. They never put it together. And you brought up a really good point. They were able to track his ankle monitor and know, and know exactly where he was. He spent most of his yeah. time in the backyard and they didn't think like, hey, we should probably go check out what he's doing back there. Yeah, because he was on a passive ankle monitor. Right. So unless somebody ever, they know that now because they went back and looked at his ankle monitor, but his fucking parole officer never took five minutes to look at his ankle monitor data. You know, and see, like, why is he spending more time behind the back fence than he is in his own house? Right. Like, what's going on back there? And yeah, even exactly. if his excuse was, oh, I spent a lot of time there working on my music so I can, and that's where my mixers are, my instruments. Yeah, but we still need to check. Right? I like, should still he's a drug addict. Like, maybe. Yeah. I mean, even if they're, obviously they're not thinking he's hiding children back there, which is what he was doing. Of course. But I would think as a parole officer, I would be checking that that's where he's hiding his drugs, obviously. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. come on, man. Or cooking meth. Like, this guy's a meth head, and he's got all these buildings in his shit backyard. You're not going to check that none of them are meth labs? Like They just took him at his word. They're just like, all right. I mean, frankly, it's, yeah. it's lazy. It, they were being lazy. Oh, yeah. So she lost her lawsuit against the feds because the fucking government is always like, nah, you can't sue us. We have immunity. And it's like, well... You fucked up, though. But she did win against the state of California. So that's good. She deserved that win. <laughs> yeah, she did. And she was awarded $20 million, which is a great kickoff for her and her kids to kind of get things off on the right foot. But <laughs> 18 years of torture. One of the reasons that she won, though, was because he had so many numerous parole violations over the 18 years she was being held. Dirty drug tests, you know, going out of the perimeter, all that kind of shit. Like, and they never revoked his parole which they should have there's no reason that they should have overlooked those time and time again yeah and another like you said another one of the reasons was because of the ankle monitor he was on an ankle monitor like half the time <laughs> and they never looked at it i know that's crazy 
But they also made numerous visits to the house over 18 years, at least 50. And like you said, they never bothered to look in any of the sheds. The other crazy thing to me is there was extension cords running from the house to the sheds on the other. Because <laughs> one of their one of their reasonings for never looking back there was you didn't know that it was back there. It was behind a fence. It's like, what about the electrical cords that are going over the fence? Yeah. You didn't think, like, why is there extension cords going back there, you idiots? I know. Like, come on. How how did you not look and go, hey, this seems suspicious. We should check this out. I don't get it. Well, even if they never did, (laughs) this only gets worse. Because a neighbor called 911 in 2006 and said her sex offender next door neighbor had little girls living in tents in his backyard. And a police officer showed up and never went in the backyard. Yeah, that's... They talked to Philip on the porch and he's like, no, I don't have kids in my backyard. And they were like, cool, bye. That's crazy talk. Who would have that? So at every... And that's like a totally different... That's not even the parole. That's like the regular police. (laughs) You know, there was just so many opportunities for this little girl to be rescued and her children. And every single person of authority was lazy complacent or incompetent like one of the three there's no excuse for this there just isn't none there was no excuse none. he should have never been out to begin with right like we could start there yeah but even after all of this these motherfuckers still had the balls to hold a press conference yeah patting themselves on the back for solving this case it's like you didn't fucking solve this case bro <laughs> Lisa Campbell and Officer Allie Jacobs solved this case. They hand-delivered it to you on a silver platter, and you still had no idea what was happening. And you still almost messed it up. Yeah, and then Philip Garrido literally brought his kidnap victim into your office, and you still almost fucked it up. JC was in the van with Nancy. They could have left. Yep. I can't believe they didn't leave. Yeah, it wasn't until, well, they were waiting for Philip. I know they were waiting for Philip, but like, wouldn't you think like, okay, let's just get you guys out of here and I'll come back for Philip or something? Like, no, they didn't do anything without him. They were a hundred percent dependent on him. Yep. But it wasn't until Philip confessed to it that these fucking parole officers figured it out. Like the balls of these guys would be like, <laughs> yeah, we, we figured this out. It's like you, you almost messed it up after other people figured it out for you. Yeah. Yep. Like, wow. I couldn't. I was like blown away watching that. I was like, you, that is asinine. And they kept their fucking mouth shut too for a long time until like November of 2022. So just a couple months ago, his parole agent broke his silence for the first time. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, he gave an interview to the local news and he said the state of California pretty much told him to shut up and not say anything to the media if he wanted to keep his job. But now that he's retired, he's giving his version which is that he did search that house exceptionally well over the years, and he never saw any evidence of JC or her kids. He says that he searched the backyard, he searched the sheds, everything, but he never saw any evidence of kids living there. So does that make him worse at his job? Yeah. And then he still says that his office was ultimately the ones who rescued her. So he's a good parole agent, despite the bad rap he's gotten. So 14 years later, he still won't admit that he let fucking Philip Garrido slip through the cracks. I I don't get it. He's still like, saying that he's a good officer and that he solved this. It's like, you... Are you fuck? Just shut up. Yeah. That's why the state of California told him to shut up. Because they're like, you arrogant motherfucker. Just shut up. You're bad at your job. Yeah. <laughs> you sure are. Like you kept saying, like, you didn't solve this. You almost screwed this up again. I can't, be- I can't believe that's still his mindset is that he solved this. It's like, oh my God. I mean, he's not the only crazy. Get- Garrido was interviewed early on once he was caught. And he gave an interview to like a local station and he said quote my life has been straightened out wait till you hear the story of what took place at this house you're going to be absolutely impressed (laughs) and then he says it's a disgusting thing that took place with me at the beginning but i turned my life completely around end quote like this motherfucker thinks he cured himself of something and he thinks he should be like marveled at and be considered looked at the same way that these girls look at him as like this godlike figure it's like no dude you are not anything but the worst part of humanity so on april 28 2011 the gritos pled guilty to kidnapping and rape by force and philip was sentenced to 431 years in prison and nancy was sentenced to 36 years to life 
So Nancy's going to be eligible for parole in 2029. Oh, denied. Sorry. I don't know. They let out that other crazy lady that was the accomplice to the guy who abducted Elizabeth Smart. Yeah, but in that case, she didn't have a month of living without him. You know, just, hey, you can do whatever. No, she didn't. Right. So I think you're right. I think Nancy is as much to blame for this. Like, she could have made things different, and she chose not to. Yeah, I don't know why she didn't get 431 years. Yeah, I don't know why either, but... I mean, I know physically she didn't, but she facilitated the whole fucking thing. 100%. And to be honest, she's probably the reason he lasted this long, because men aren't very smart when it comes to this stuff. So he cleaned up all, or she cleaned up all of his messes. I am guaranteed of that. It's the same reason why... Guaranteed. It's the same reason why Samuel Little got away with so much of his stuff, too. He was with a woman who cleaned up after him. Like, yep. men are going to get caught doing this shit unless they have a woman who is just as deranged and, you know, comes in behind them, which they shouldn't. Nobody should. Fuck them. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I th- I mean, <sighs> there are so many similarities Nancy to this. Sucks. Like, I looking <laughs> thinking about this more, there's a lot of similarities between this and Samuel Little. Their situations are similar. Slipped through the cracks, had women with them who, who solved things for them, you know, and just shouldn't have been in the situations they were in over and over again. Well, like you said, that's why this case is so important. Like, it's not important to tell the details of what happened to her. That's up to her, you know, and in her book she does. But it's important to tell her story because one, it gives people hope that after 18 years, there could still be a chance, you know? Absolutely. But also, it shows the failures in our system and the reason that people are sentenced to the sentences that they are. And just because somebody acts like an angel in prison doesn't mean you let them out. Especially when their crime has nothing to do with the people around them now. If they don't have access to the victims that they're looking for, yeah, they probably are going to behave pretty well. But as soon as you let them right. run amok with society again, they're going to go right back into their old ways. Child molesters don't change. Yeah, but he wasn't arrested for, I know you keep saying that, but he was not arrested for child molesting. He was arrested for rape, I know. But but I get what you're saying. He yeah. did the, 10 years is not a long enough sentence for rape and kidnap. It's not. No, it's That's not. That's why he got a 50-year sentence. Especially. So that he would be so old by the time he got out, he wouldn't be able to rape or kidnap anybody. Especially with what he did to premeditate both of these the first one is like obviously the second one lasted way way longer but the first one like was so premeditated this guy went through avenues to make sure that this would happen he was married and got a and hitchhiked to get a ride back to his storage unit so he could do this someone like this shouldn't be with the rest of us yeah i know and they knew that that's why they gave him a 50-year sentence but for some reason no he shouldn't have even been a, be a, allowed to get parole after 10 years like it shouldn't have even been an option i know Anyway, this is the miraculous but also horrible story of J.C. Lee Dugard and her survival. I hope you're happy, Timmy underscore C97. Now you got me all worked up. Yeah, Grant really hates cases with kids. I really do. It's because I feel like I can stop it. Like, if I was there, I would have stopped it. And, ah. Just so many times I just want to stop it. And you can't. You can't. It's all over. It's, I, I hate it. I hate it. Anyway. Well, thank you for tuning in again to another episode. Erica and I are trying to make this into something bigger and better. So if you could please rate and review us on uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, it really would help us take this show to the next level. So we would really appreciate your your support. And we'll give you a shout out. What more do you need? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, don't forget to upload your DNA to Jed Match. <laughs> And and opt in. It's going to take a little bit of use, getting used to, isn't it? Yeah, it's still not flowing so good, but we'll figure it out. And don't forget to visit us at our Instagram at From Crime to Crime, our TikTok From Crime to Crime, our Twitter From Crime to Crime, and our podcast. Nope, that's this. Our email. <laughs> <laughs> our, you can visit us at our podcast, too. <laughs> Please visit us we at like our podcast. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but you can visit us at our email, send us a little note or whatever at from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com. The end. All right, let's go. This has been a long time. I love you. I love you too. All right, talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>